I'd like to draw your attention this morning, if you have your scriptures there handy, to Micah 6. We'll begin there. The background for Micah 6 is the picture of a long-suffering God who remains faithful to his unfaithful people. That's the essential background. You can just think of all the ups and downs of the history of Israel from Abraham to Micah 6. And underneath all those downs, all those times of rejection of God and disobedience and taking the wrong road and transgressing and not keeping the law, standing behind all of that is a long-suffering and faithful God. And so now, once again, the people of God and God are having a bit of an argument. And Micah, as the prophet, is acting as a go-between. And in a morning of baptism, we can see a little analogy here of coming to faith. And so essentially God says, look at all I've done for you in salvation history. So what have I done that you judge and ignore me or reject me? And again, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but Israel through the prophet finally says, okay, you win. What should we do? And underneath this is the notion of what does it mean to be true to you? Given our sacrificial system. What does it mean to be truly religious? And I want you to note the beauty of God's answer. It's one of the most quoted passages of all of the Old Testament. And it reveals both God's heart and the simple core good of religion. And kind of theologically, it makes ethical meaning of the sacrificial system. Because essentially what's under Israel's question is, okay, we're sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats and grain, and we're doing this. So, Lord, what would please you? Would it be big fat offerings? Would it be a lot of offerings? Should we turn up the fire really hot? This is what they're wondering. What would actually please you? What's this actually all about? And God makes meaning of this sacrificial system, this way, in a sense, that he's been coaching, mentoring. You know, Torah means instruction. It's, it's God's instruction to form a people. And, and God says, no, what's actually going on here is not types of offerings, but a type of person. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. That's what the sacrificial system rolls up to. Basically, when I called Abraham and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and you're essentially going to be my cosmic first responders, where there's places of pain in the earth, where there's places of injustice, where there's fallenness and sin and sickness and disease and leprosy and and demonization, those places in the earth, you're going to be my people to bring goodness to that. So what this all rolls up to is act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. I mean, this isn't really hard. Act, act ju- well, it's hard to do, not hard to understand. Act justly simply means do the right thing. Don't hurt people. I mean, that's essentially what's underneath that Hebrew idea of justice in this text. Love mercy. It just means let your basic behavior, your conduct, be guided by loving kindness. Walk humbly. Again, this is easy to understand. It's just kind of a a meekness that comes from knowing that you live your audience before a life of one. 
Well, today, and this is increasingly so from my studies as kind of an amateur sociologist of religion, millions of people are wondering today, God, very much like the people of Israel, God, if there is one, what does it mean to relate to you? What really would please you? But very similar, by the way, to ancient Israel, this wondering happens in a world of pluralistic, relativistic, competing truth claims. You know, in this kind of, Stravis just said, you know, this post-truth, alternative facts sort of world with all kinds of different complete, competing truth claims. And the answer to that question is actually, again, simple to understand. When somebody asks me that kind of question, when somebody with an epistemologically broken heart, sorry for a big word on a Sunday morning, but that is to say, when somebody has a brokenness in them that has to do with a deep gut felt, there is no truth I can actually know. There's no truth that I feel like I can grasp and comprehend and hold on to as if it, re it really represents reality. I have empathy for people like that. And so when people like that say that to me, I'm just not quite sure that I can put my, my foot on anything that's like intellectually, socially, truthfully solid. I'll just say, I get it. Well, what should I do, Todd? Trust and follow Jesus. That's my standard answer. If you don't know what else to do, trust and follow Jesus. Well, how do I do that? Well, you might want to come to know his teachings. You might want to come to know the things he said was true. And then you can just decide. Do you want to trust him? Place your confidence in him. That the things he taught do correspond to an essential, truthful reality. And as doing, as you do, I might sometimes say, you will actually learn to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. This will flow naturally from a transformed heart. Well, Psalm 15, if you want to look at that quickly, this is a, it's a very, very similar theme. You can see why the lectionary people put this together. The Psalm 15 is, is one of the psalms that, that tries to answer, ask and answer a very similar question. This is a psalm that the people would say as they were going to worship. And in this case, the psalmist cries out wondering with this very similar emphasis, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who can dwell in your holy hill? And again, for us, we would put this simply, how should we approach you in worship? Or we, you know, living on the other side of the cross and resurrection might ask, what identifies the person who's alive to Christ in the kingdom of God? And the psalmist says, walk straight, act right, tell the truth, don't hurt your friend, don't blame your neighbor. And then here's an interesting one, despise the despicable. That, that sounds really tone deaf in 2017, doesn't it? That's like really like, well, whoa, you can't say that in 2017. I get that. But here's what you can say. Don't lose the capacity to see and name evil. That's just another aspect of getting at truth. And if we lose the capacity to say spousal abuse is a non-starter, we're toast. If we fail to learn to name 
lies or dissembling that harms a person or whole groups of people, we've lost something really important. It doesn't mean we have to be mean or mean-spirited. It just means we cannot lose our ethical grounding. Psalmist goes on saying, keep your word even when it costs you. Make an honest living. Never take a bribe. Now, here I want to say again something that we often say here at Holy Trinity, but we often say it because it's super important. And that is we can't reduce these kinds of texts to moralisms. You know, they're not like a, a, a system of ethics. I mean, they can count in a system of ethics, but they can't get reduced to it. And in this case, these aren't even like merely requirements from God to come to him and worship. I mean, look at the last sentence of your text. This is a gift of a kind of life. The psalmist says, whoever does these things will never be shaken. Uh, On my own notes, I titled this sermon. I never give you guys sermon titles, but I always have one. In, In my own notes, my sermon title was, in a moment here, baptized into an unshakable kind of life that we're baptized into the reality of the trinitarian god in which we as we bring our lives to him in the way micah and the psalmist here is is suggesting we get a gift we don't get like an ethical check mark we get a kind of life a life that can't be shaken i mean come on think with me look me in the eye here would you not like today a life that can't be shaken And wouldn't it be a great gift to humanity if there were tens of millions of American Christians who were living lives that can't be shaken, who could just stand in the midst of everything else that is shaken and radiate this other kind of life, a life that's derived from and lived in God and his kingdom. And from that is this unshakable, childlike confidence. It makes me wonder when I think of the ache that I see all around me For people to be the kind of person described in Micah and in Psalm 15. And I don't just see that in like my Christian friends and colleagues and stuff, although I see it in them. But I also see an ache in the world today for leaders, corporate, educational, political, medical, you name it, and all the big systems of humankind. I think I see an ache for people who live in, leaders who live in and reflect this reality. And it makes me wonder if in all this aching that there is in our culture today and in the whole world, I mean, the Western and the developed world aches in a certain way. Of course, the the undeveloped world aches in different ways. But in this aching, I wonder if we're not actually hearing an echo of the garden. That if this aching doesn't represent a little divine voice that's imprinted in all of our DNAs, look at this amazing creation. Come work with me in it. So in the beginning of the story, you have creation and an invitation to come work with God as the basic definition for what it means to be human. At the end of the story, Revelation 22.5, you have this thought. And they will rule and reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. When metaphorically the sun dims, as we just sang, and the earth begins to recede, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, the invitation to be human is to live with God as his cooperative friend. 
And so I wonder if in this aching that I see a malalignment in myself, and I see a malalignment in just sort of the basic forms of human leadership today, I actually wonder if that isn't a little echo. Maybe they'll someday, maybe some brilliant person someday will find that in our DNA. This little echo of an external person and purpose. Catch this. An external person and purpose that gives meaning to my person and my person and, and, and my purpose in the world. So then when we come finally to the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is teaching something, and he's teaching it to a precise group of people, to learners. So you have Jesus here acting the part of a rabbi teaching, and he's teaching to a specific group of people, mathetes, people who are students or apprentices. And so if you have a teacher and you have apprentices, then I think, especially on a baptism morning, this raises a couple of important initiating questions. So you ready? Here you go. This is a real life question for you. This is not rhetorical. This is a real life question. Is Jesus your teacher? I didn't ask, are you going to heaven when you die? I didn't ask, is this his shed blood how you're getting there? I'm asking a different set of questions. I'm asking, from whom are you learning to do life? From whom are you deriving a set of values, priorities, practices, a sense of purpose, direction, aims? Is he your teacher? And the second question it raises, especially appropriate as a baptismal service, is are you his apprentice? Right? You have these two dynamics. Can't have an apprentice without a teacher, and you can't have a teacher without a group of people to talk to. These things work synergistically together. And so the, the passage tells us that Jesus is precisely teaching those who were apprenticed to him, those who had given them to help themselves to him and were following him. And then we have here these famous words that begin the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. Um, Beatitudes helps us go from the Greek to the Latin to English. But, uh, and this is very technical, don't have time to talk about it today, but just to say that blessed, when you hear this word blessed, it's a highly technical term that every Jew listening to Jesus would have known what he was saying because their minds would have immediately gone to Deuteronomy that said, if you're this kind of person or act this way, you're cursed. Remember this? If you're this kind of person or act in this way, you're blessed. And Jesus upends that whole thing. And he says, no, this is what's true. So these are statements of fact. In the Greek, we say these are in the indicative mood. They're not in the imperative mood. Imperative meaning a command. This is in a mood that's very clear. That is just a part of grammar. That Jesus is making statements of fact that blow everybody's mind. These aren't commands that say, try harder to live this way. I mean, this is rhetorical. Like, how many of you read the, the Sermon on the Mount many times and thought, oh, I just need to try harder to be poor in spirit? Right? And you just start seeing that, wait a minute, this can't work that way. No, these are good news statements of truth. This is good news statements of what's real. They're announcements that in Jesus and in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through him, that whatever one's condition, regardless of being whether you were written off by privileged Roman society, I want you to catch this. I want you to have the imagination for this. A group of people who are apprenticing themselves to Jesus, who their whole lives have been told by Roman elite society that you don't matter. You're stinking, dirty, filthy little Jews. You don't matter. 
It was nothing new to cook them in ovens in the 20th century. They were told they were done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You don't matter in Roman society, in polite society. And even amongst the elite Jews, you don't matter. You're set aside and marginalized for both Roman and Jewish reasons. And Jesus looks at them and says, but in the kingdom of God, here's the fact. You are blessed. Whatever your circumstance in life, you are actually blessed. As citizens of the kingdom, Jesus is saying, no matter how your former religion or culture or community might have named you. Ladies, there have got to be a dozen or more of you in this room who had brothers or uh, former husbands or a father who told you you were a slut. There are men in this room who grew up with a father figure in their life telling them you're a worthless piece of you know what. And Jesus says, I don't care what named you in Roman society. I don't care what named you in your family. I don't care what named you in misguided Jewish religion. You in my kingdom, you come follow me and you begin to derive your life from my kingdom. You begin to live your life within my kingdom. You are blessed. You're good. You're okay. You're not cursed by how you may have been previously named or pigeonholed. And that that blessing in the New Testament, marked by baptism, that becomes, that blessing then becomes the context for followership. It's what gives us confidence that if we show up to Jesus poor in spirit, feeling like we have no spiritual capacity for all, at all, if we mourn over the condition of our life or the world or our culture or our religion, our denomination, if we mourn over these things, it's okay, you're blessed. If you're meek, feeling like you have no power to change things, you're blessed. If you feel unspiritual and you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness out of a sense of lack, you're blessed. If you feel you've spent all your mercy and there's nothing less, if you strive for a pure life, if you want to see peace in the world, but you feel like this isn't happening, if you want to do right and people throw it in your face, you're blessed. You're okay. You're not cursed. Don't live as if you're cursed. I am not a hellfire and brimstone rabbi standing up here again like a Roman ruler or a Jewish world to just put you, a Jewish ruler to put you down. I am saying, over this crowd on the hillside, come follow me. And in my kingdom, you are blessed. So then when we come to baptism, I think we give to everybody a little booklet that Dennis and Trevecca wrote. I think we do. If not, you can have one. And in this, uh, Dennis and Trevecca write that baptism is kind of seen in four quick little analogies. It's an initiation into the covenant family. It's a seal of God's grace, this positive, unearned blessing in your life. It's the assurance that God will forgive our sins. And it's also a call into the life described above. So in a sense, when you see me in these kind of clothes... <laughs> And we're doing baptisms or confirmations or receptions. Essentially what we're doing, both the people who are being confirmed or baptized or received, and us as a congregation as we recite again our own baptismal vows, what we're all doing in a moment is we're all going to stand up and say, yes, Lord. That's what this is all about. Whether you're the one being baptized to receive this morning or whether we're part of the community in which this is happening, 
we're saying, yes, I will follow you. I will trust and rely on your teachings. I will copy your manner of living. I will give myself to your priorities. These will become the things that orient my life. And then I just want to say one last thing. As we do this, it's not normally the world that changes. The world is always going to be both beautiful and horrible. What changes is our orientation to it. Our sense of confidence, groundedness, peacefulness. A deep, inner, previously existing security that allows us to be present to this broken and sometimes horrible world and able out of that simple childlike confidence to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's the vision. It may or may not transform your family. It may or may not transform your city. We always hope it does. But it may or may not. The world will probably always have its ups and downs until we die. But our orientation to it can change. As we take Jesus precisely as our teacher, as we apprentice ourselves to him, as we receive his instruction and begin to practice what he taught, we then become the kind of people for whom acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God is our fundamental intuition. Maybe I should invite you now for a moment of quiet to maybe close your eyes and bow your heads. And maybe you could answer those questions this morning. Is Jesus my teacher? Am I his apprentice?